and I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But then's the break. All right, um, I'm not going to try to bring the mood up or uh, distract from anything. Um, if you're hearing this, uh, you've heard the news. Uh, Boris Johnson is going to resign as the prime minister. He's the leader of the conservative party. Um, they're, they're making him stay on until October. While his former, his, his so-called friends find a replacement for him right in front of him. This is a crazy day. This is a historic day and probably one of the worst days of my life if not all of our lives. Absolutely. Ask not for who big bang bongs. It bongs for Boris. <laughs> it's, you know, we, we have, we, you know, for, for so long in this show, we've tried to support political movements that reflect our values and, you know, political leaders that we think are worthy of support and admiration. And it gets taken away from us every single time. No matter, no matter anyone good, they just take away. It's gone up the apples and pears at number 10 downing. They're having a laugh. All we can do is simply Raise a pint to our Boris. To Boris. To Boris. We're all Glass. we're all drinking a Glass. pint right Boris. now. I'm I'm already in the hospital. <laughs> I'm like I'm experiencing pancreatitis just from the sight of this beer that's ninety eight percent head. <laughs> it's a typical English beer that's 98 to ninety nine percent head, and my pancreas is coming through my throat. Ninety eight percent head. Ears. Also ninety eight degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Well, that's just it's like honest, a good English you know? lager. You're not paying for bubbles. You're not paying for any of that stuff. You're paying for pure beer. And right now, that's what we need. Um, I think it's obvious. I think it's, you know, the forces of capital. That's who has yes. always been yes. fighting against Boris his entire career. will never forgive him for getting Brexit done. Nope. Never. Nope. No. And like, look, and in just, in just a little bit, I'm going to be talking to a journalist, Ali Vargas, who covers Latin America. And, you know, we had him on uh, not too long ago to talk about the coup in Bolivia talk about like you know like the the sort of changing tide in latin america but like what's going on in england like let's be very clear this is a coup this is a coup yeah. this is the forces of neoliberal capitalist hegemony are doing a color revolution against the government of boris i mean you're doing a bit but that is sort of true like the people leading this from within the party are all part of some weird like right wing uh the sort of deep state apparatus deal but it's not it's not because Boris is a threat to capital. It's just because he's a big bungling oaf and they want to get rid of him because he's trying to do it his own way. And at a certain point, they have to uh, assert institutional values. Matt, I mean, like, we were just observing last night, uh, we were, I, I really thought Boris was going to, th I thought Boris was going to take it home because I really, I was I really rooting for him. I'm not going to I was rooting for it. Me too. I mean, like, to have 60 ministers resign and then just be like, nah. I'm, I'm forming and I'm forming. I'm, I'm putting all nonces. It's the non shield wall. Chris Pincher, the guy, the Chris, the guy's <laughs> name was Chris Pincher. Chris Pincher, the guy who is groping young men. His name yeah. is Chris Pincher. Yeah. We so got Boris's Boris's whip was Keller from Oz. <laughs> <laughs> she like knowingly picked him to do that. Um, yeah. No, I thought he was going to hold it out. I really did. I thought I was like watching the end of the first Matrix movie. I was like, oh, my God, he sees the ones and zeros. He's just he's blocking Michael Gove. He's not letting him <laughs> to be uh, level up. Set. Yeah. Boom. Go. Boom. Set. It's true. 
people talk about how oh Trump tried to do a coup and he did the least effort he could. He didn't do everything he could. He had some psychos in his ear after Bob Barr said there was no evidence of large scale fraud saying, fuck him, put me in there, coach. I'll be AG. I'll say there was fraud. We'll fucking get into those alternate <laughs> electors. And the thing that stopped him was all the high level DOJ people said, I'm going to quit and you're going to look bad. And that little fat bitch folded like a deck chair immediately. The tr- the alpha Trump mega lion. Oh no, people will be, they'll think I'll look bad if everyone quits. Never mind. I'll just leave. Meanwhile, Boris is like, hey, bitch, you can't quit if I fire your ass. Get the <laughs> fuck out of here. I don't think. Yeah. And he was able to like he actually confronted the last line of defense of like, institutional prerogative against like an individual executive, which is mass resignations. That's the one thing they have in their pocket. And he just fucking called their bluff. And it was honestly kind of breathtaking. But uh, at the end of the day, he just didn't have it. Well, they, they, they probably like, I mean, it's, I don't think it was the ministers. I think that's a smokescreen. He obviously, he didn't care about losing any of those people. What does Boris care about the most? He cares about having children out of wedlock while married to another woman. <laughs> and they were probably like, Boris, you do work tirelessly for the United Kingdom, for Brexit and for the Commonwealth and for the Queen. But you like, you're, you're still a man and you have to sleep. And the next time you go to sleep, MI6 is going to give you a vasectomy. <laughs> and they threaten to take what matters to him the most, which is um, getting like sort of like uh, weird, like uh, J.C. Penny manager looking women pregnant every then, two years. And uh, yeah, yeah, having as many kids as possible and then showing dominance to those children by tackling them on the football pitch. Yes, that's our that's our Boris. That's our Boris. He's literally repopulating England. <laughs> and they hate, they'll never forgive him for that. They'll never forgive, they'll never forgive him for any of the good things he did. All of them. He, do you know, okay. I think 70 million Britons would have died of COVID if it was anyone before. It's true. He protected them. <laughs> yes. He bonged Big Ben for Brexit. Yeah. Can you imagine COVID yeah. without Brexit? Can you imagine that? Oh my God! All those, all those sex arses coming in from Calais, coded in COVID. Yeah, well, like the yeah, the passports would be the wrong color. That the, would that lowers the, if you don't have the blue passport, it lowers your uh, immune system by up to fifty percent. That's science. Yeah. Another thing, I mean, another thing they won't forgive him for, and you know, like I mean, like this is a testament to his leadership. What was he doing? And really, uh, to, to my understanding, and like I'm being serious right now, to my understanding. Basically, what undid his um, uh, prime ministership was having a good time, having yep. a party with yeah. his friends. Just, you know, like what? Oh, pincher is it, is, muncher. That's, lead, that's, that's leadership. Muncher, pincher, ped, defile, uh, all of them. Look, if you, if you can't have a party, if you can't have a proper drinks due with your mates, a right boozer, and number 10 during COVID lockdown... I mean, that, that is what did him in, right? I mean, like that, that was the... Well, no, all this. he was actually... See, the reason he tried to ride this out is because he, this exploded a few months ago and everyone was like, Boris has to resign. And then he had the genius <laughs> realization, oh, yeah, I actually don't. There's nothing requiring me to. Uh, I could just hang around and people will find something else to care about. And he was right. But then, Pinscher is the last straw. <laughs> If he could yeah. have avoided a pincher. Was that really the last straw? It, yes, was pincher the guy, was the last yeah. straw. This guy which I honestly men. think, I think that means it was probably a fucking stitch up from inside the party because that, that, 
got out due to people he was close to 100 percent. yeah i mean if there's if there's one thing a political party cannot cannot withstand in england it's having many of its high-ranking members associated yeah with there's nothing the tory <laughs> the tory party doesn't know how to keep it quiet when their fucking high-ranking members are molesting people well, I think that's that, what oh, oh, this guy. He, oh, the, of course, the press found out about this. How are you supposed to stop something like that from coming out? Yeah, well, they put I, it out there because they wanted to get rid of Boris. I think what did him in with Chris uh, Pincer is that um, it was adults he was groping. Yeah, <laughs> yes. that's that's very they were, abnormal they were young and freakish for the British. Be attracted to anyone 20s. over the age of majority. <laughs> no, thank you. Get out of here, you, you freak. Well, I mean, like, what about? Okay, I mean, there's a situation. Where I saw people speculating about this. That if Boris didn't resign, it could have activated the Queen. They might have had to activate the Queen. Because, you know, I mean, it hasn't happened in a long time. What if the Queen got activated? What if she was activated? I mean, maybe that's, maybe, honestly, her? maybe that's why they got rid of her. That's why they got rid of him. It's because he would have activated the Queen. And by activated the Queen, I mean, uh, busted her down. Busted her out with <laughs> her big blonde head. He would, well, he would have had uh, the next... This he, he would have, Prime Minister he would Boris have Johnson has somehow... It impregnated Queen Elizabeth II. Yes. Like yes. the strength of his seed is such that he would bust her down, 92 years old. She would immediately be pregnant with the new lion of England. They would she immediately would be like, displace yeah. William, Harry, Charles, all that. They would have been gotten out, just thrown to the wayside. It's the it Boris would, be, would yeah. sire a new royal line. It would be a Becca Butcher situation where they'd finally be like, oh, uh, she actually um, died uh, for some reason. <laughs> And they're they're giving her witness protection like Vought does in the boys, but it's like in ger- her native Germany, and she's raising like a super kid, like a, a Ryan, like Ryan, like Homelander's Ryan. It's like a little Boris who has also has Boris's superpowers, which is getting every woman pregnant. But he would have he would have ascended the king then, and I mean. God only knows where he goes from here. I mean, Boris was born in America. It's true. Okay, he's a he's an American Turk. Two of the most powerful fucking types of people yeah. to be. He's both of them. Now there is a problem. He did renounce his citizenship to avoid paying taxes, but we can probably get that back for him. We can fix that, yeah. no question. No, yeah, no, dude, I'm I'm putting out a GoFundMe right now. Bring back Boris's U.S. citizenship. He's a born citizen. He could become president. We need to give him asylum in America. We need well, to grant asi- him political yeah. asylum. Well, because I don't think I, he's not safe in England right now. He's not. He's surrounded by. He's. It's an op party. Let's face it. Um, he cannot even trust Larry, the chief mouser of number ten. I hope he kills that awful cat, <laughs> lazy cat. Um, Compromise to a permanent end. Yeah, the Michael Gove of cats. But um, you know, if we make him president. You know, people were pretty happy, okay, when East Germany and West Germany reunited. Yeah. What if we get the band back together? Oh, my God. With Boris yes. the head. Oh, man. America, I mean, it, should, it actually we should join does the make sense. Like, if, we're go- if the U.S. is committed to uh, confrontation with China, as they clearly are, then we're going to need to, we're going to need a bigger boat. You know, we're, we're, we're not going to be able to allow the, this informal alliance bullshit to to do the job we're gonna have to get back into like an actual uh transatlantic formal alliance where we subsume all of our politics uh, our political systems into one giant anglo-american borg to make a final desperate <laughs> nihilistic death drive for 
the the grabs uh the the reins of power before we're annihilated how funny would that be if like like at a time when like uh you're like uh like barbados or like uh jamaica or leaving the commonwealth are taking the clean off the money that like joe joe biden comes out tomorrow and says america is joining the commonwealth see that's the problem the big problem we have is the obstacle we have is fucking irish joe biden with his yeah no yeah grievance Yeah, you would never that's how you know that they're the, the uh, American Irish person is fake when they like really hate England. It's like, really, you're pissed at England because uh, they drove your family out of County Mayo in 1848. And then you got to have your dad come to America and like immediately become a cop. And then <laughs> by the time you showed up, your family owned like 15 car dealerships in three states and you're fucking pissed at the British. <laughs> I'm imagining, though, if Biden joined the Commonwealth, like all our money would have the queen on it. And then, like, you could put stickers on dollar bills of Joe Biden <laughs> turning at the Queen going, I did that. I did that. <laughs> uh, the other thing I've been laughing about for about a day, uh, shout out Libby Watson, who is now uh, a citizen of America. But it just shows how quickly you lose track of how, how just what the fuck is going on in the UK. Because she was unaware of the fact that it was like Michael Gove sacked. And his job title was Secretary of Leveling Up. And I swear to God. <laughs> what the fuck? I, I heard that I and I was like, like okay. Like, I, I, I don't want to find out what that means. Like nobody explain what that means to me. Just because the idea of a secretary of leveling up is so funny to me. He's just they, no. yeah. They use the evolution stone from Pokemon on on chabs <laughs> to turn them into <laughs> middle class people. That's called the property ladder. Yeah. <laughs> you know my my favorite thing that Boris was doing in his last week. Um, I mean his last week before resigning. We we have plenty of weeks of Boris though. There'll be twinge of sadness over them. Um, it was like every time that people were yelling at him the most, he'd be like, oh, I was actually uh, just talking to Zelensky. <laughs> like, Zelensky's like his fall safe where it's like he's like he's like on tape being like, the pedophiles love me. And you know, people are like, what the fuck? What the fuck? And he goes, uh, I mean, um, I just talked to Zelensky and um, it's really bad over there. And it's funny because practically what talking to Zelensky meant was basically... Um, uh, undermining any effort by the Ukrainian government to negotiate any kind of end to this horrible war with Russia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Boris just hops on the phone. And he's like, all right, lads, we got to keep up the good fight. Spirit Dunkirk, mates. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, also, oh, yeah, we're cutting you off if you talk to the Russian government uh, even one time more again. Like, it just, if you, if you yeah. even pick up a phone call to, like, I don't know, like, bring any kind of negotiated settlement to the end of this horrific violence, then yeah, you're officially getting cut off. Also, none of you can come here. <laughs> Fuck you. No, yep. Yeah. Stay over there. <laughs> Too weird. Uh, our Boris. Uh, our this Bo- is this is sad, man. I'll I'll miss him a lot. I really will. Everything's fucked. Everything's fucked and sucks shit. It's fucking hell world out there. Yo, yo, old heads are gonna say this is nothing like Tupac, bro. We were around for Tupac. <laughs> this is exactly what it was like when Tupac died. <laughs> The only thing oh, they could do to fix this is to bring in Michael Fabricant to be the <laughs> PM. I don't know if you guys know uh, who that is, but he looks like a Pokemon devolution of Boris Johnson. You should look him, okay, pull him up. He's, okay. It's uncanny that there is another British Tory in oh, the yeah. parliament with his oh, exact asshole yeah, haircut, yeah. only what he's like fuck? somehow sort of a Wait, shriveled a, hobbit version of him is this well, he a, a weave. weave he has a weave is this a weave yeah, yeah. what yeah. the fuck it might be but he commits to it it's on his head every goddamn day <laughs> <laughs> okay maybe next prime minister 
that absolutely enormous Gormo who Queen Elizabeth hangs out with. <laughs> yeah, that that guy's but, good. I don't know. I'm. I guess. I mean, like, who gives a shit? Like, just break the whole thing up after Boris. But um, I think I it might will, be honestly. Yeah, that might be what's coming. Look at those. Look at those Sinn Fein uh, poll numbers in in the Republic, and my fucking pineal gland is vibrating over here any david davis fans out there (laughs) (laughs) david davis is like i don't know who i would equate him i guess he he gives me like a lincoln chafee vibe just looking at him but he was like an sas guy okay i don't know there's really no one on the bench everything's fucked jacob reese mog jacob reese moog remember that guy you know oh yeah that guy's awesome the nanny the guy with the nanny the 17 kids, and they're all named after popes, like Sixtus and shit. Innocent. Yeah. Wait, um, a Catholic prime minister? Mm, I don't know about that. Actually, know about that. Uh, I think it might still technically be illegal. They might, If they changed <laughs> it, it's like within the last decade. But for, Yo, for uh, it was like legally, uh, Catholics were legally prohibited from uh, getting the crown, which they still are, but also from being uh, prime minister. You know, and like, I think, you know, Felix, like, there's a lot of old heads out there right now saying, oh, like, Boris is nothing like John Major, or you can't compare Boris Johnson and John Major. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, old head. Yeah. You, know, you stop, you still, you know, you just, you just stop caring about new shit in the fucking 80s. Yo, you know what's fucking yeah, John Major, he was like, he, you know, he was a prime minister and he was like, boom, bap, we do the clap. Like, that shit sucks. <laughs> that shit sucks. Yo, Boris Johnson, was... Boris Johnson, like, oh, oh, he's not lyrical. It shit doesn't matter. He's originating new shit. What, what, what was dope about John Major, whether you like his music or not, is he felt everything. That's exactly why the kids today resonate with Boris. That's exactly it. And you know what's fucking disgusting? You know what I can't fucking stand? When these the fucking media goes up to Chris Pitcher and goes, accused molester of men. Chris Pitcher. It's so fucking wrong to boil down, boil someone down to the worst thing they ever did. Would they? Would, would they? Would they say that about a guy who succeeded in the business world? I don't think so. It's so fucked up. I hate everything. Yeah. Yeah. Where's our guitar slave? <laughs> to sing "God Save the Queen." <laughs> the guy we found in L.A. who plays acoustic guitar. He's our friend. He's our friend who's going to do some dope shit. Play, yeah. play this, one, this one's for Boris. Play us out. Yo. Yo. God save the queen. Uh, how, would, how would Lil Xan sing it? God um, save the queen, y'all. The fascist God. regime. There ain't no future and England's dreaming. What? That's my impression of Lil Xan. Anarchist. <laughs> Xanarchy. Xanarchy in the UK. We should... um. If we all like live in the same place again, we should recreate the mom's basement set, and like that's where we should record. But call it Boris's basement. Yeah, we like make it. No, we call Boris's boozer. Boris's basement. Yeah, Boris's boozer. Yeah, yeah, and we can. Well, you guys could drink like the warmest beer ever. I'll just be drinking piss. I'll be drinking my. Yeah. I'll be. I'll be retaining semen and drinking my own piss. Maybe they'll. Um. Maybe they'll invent the new pancreas by that time, and I can finally have some a nice like sub boiling British beer. <laughs> Just, like, nice. just a low simmer, a low simmer. Yeah, well, that'd be nice. So, in his in his farewell speech today, uh, Buck Broken Boris uh, finished his <laughs> words by saying, uh, "I'm very sad to give up the best job in the world, but them's the breaks. These are the breaks. Ooh, okay. What what, what class? What yeah, song yeah, droid? What what a stiff upper lip? How could you not respect this man eternally? Yeah. Well, 
I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I, you know, once again, I'm at a loss for words. I have nothing else to say that hasn't been said a million times before. All I'll say is, fuck the world. I feel like shit. Um, just, just back Boris. Back Boris. Yeah, back Boris. Back Boris. Let's, anywhere we can find him. He could, like, uh, up, you know, New York City Council. I don't know. We like mayor of Denver. Just we got to find something for him. Yeah, it's just you know what. It really is like hard to do this show sometimes. <laughs> not the past two weeks. There's been no news event that like really depressed me for anything. Not really like this year at all, frankly. Um, nothing that really like depressed me or or anything. But days like this, it's so. This is the saddest news story of the year. I would say. Yeah. How are you supposed to live knowing that a big, beautiful boy like Boris can't be allowed to just, you know, put his thing down and and vibe without these this army of just little assholes, these these small minded nabobs undermining him at every point until he can't defeat them anymore. <laughs> the, now, the nattering nonsense of negativity. Yeah, <laughs> it's sad. Uh, you know, I mean, we'll like, all what float I on. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, uh, I would like to say just, you know, keep retaining your semen unless you're Boris Johnson. Spread it as far as possible. We need we need yep. we need a new lineage. We need a new bloodline. Yeah. You know, it's like we always say pints in COVID sorted. Happy days. We hope that one day again, we will have happy days in this great United Kingdom. And by United right. Kingdom, we mean the merger of America and the UK yes. and New Zealand. We're getting oh, yeah, that get woman out of there. And Canada. Canada. Gone. Yeah. Canada. Just Trudeau, yeah gone. Gone gone all of the australia coming back um who's the who's the uh like prime minister they got rid of in 1975 go something uh goge whitlam yeah they yeah they a, already they did, don't yeah on they behalf don't of us have, they did a coup yeah they don't have sovereignty already no it's a joke like yeah let's just formalize this thing it's wild so that happened like australia so one of the reasons that these countries allow the queen to be their uh technical head of state is that it's supposed to be ceremonial right they've got the governor general who hangs around uh the capital but they don't really have any say in government but then in the 70s they had this uh relatively you know for australian uh standards left-wing prime minister and then they just have the the cia says no 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 and then the governor general's like yeah no he's not prime minister anymore and just letting everybody know oh yeah if we want to we can crap the crack the whip on you and make your entire democracy fake and then, like, 10 years later, they had a fucking referendum. Hey, do we get rid of the monarchy? And they were like, nah, let's keep it. We love it. We love the queen's. Uh, we love her stern embrace. We love being chained up like dogs to her. <laughs> I, think, I think the Senate parliamentarian should really look into this. And tomorrow and just come out and said, I've looked at the rules, everybody. And Boris Johnson is now king of America. Yep. I'm sorry. Those are the rules. We have to follow them. It's a clear interpretation of the it's me, the Senate. Clause. It's me, the Senate parliamentarian, declaring Boris Johnson king of America. Yep. It's in the Constitution. It's just simply these are these are the these are the rules we have. We have to follow them. So I mean, I mean, that's the way out. That's the way out. But like, you know, will anyone be brave enough to do it? That's the only question I have. And mm -hmm. you know, I got nothing else to say. Just yeah. Fuck the world, back Boris. That's what I'm about now. The old world is struggling to be dead. The new world's struggling to be itself. And now we live in a time without Boris. Uh, all right. Well, uh, I guess uh, that wraps up our emergency podcast on the, the darkest political day in really all of Western history. Oh, yeah. And James Conn is dead. So, yeah. yeah RIP. Like you say, real quick, RIP to a true legend, James Conn. If you haven't seen Thief yet, watch it now. Watch it again. It's 
it's it's a masterpiece. It's the only masterpiece ever ever created by any human being. So yeah, um, R.I.P. Boris, R.I.P. James Cons. Just legends never die, though. Legends never die. Okay, on to my interview with uh, Ali Vargas about um, Latin America. Yeah, this is luckily like more that we we have a lighthearted segment coming after this heavy stuff. Okay, joining me now is uh, journalist Ali Vargas of Casacha News uh, to hopefully uh, provide some context for uh, the political moment uh, happening in uh, Central and South America. And Ali, the last time you were on the show, we were talking uh, Bolivia and um, the sort of post-coup election and the uh, government of Luis Arce and the MAS party. Um, I want to get to Bolivia, but uh, first I'd like to begin in uh, Mexico because um, you've been doing... Um, uh, a lot of reporting on sort of um, how the uh, disruptions to the international energy market has created some sort of antagonisms between uh, both the U.S., the EU, and the government of uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. So I just like to begin with, um, can you talk a little bit about like how like oil politics and the uh, Russia-Ukraine war is sort of putting um, AMLO's uh, political ambitions sort of in the crosshairs of the uh, U.S. and EU at the moment? Thanks, Will. Thanks for uh, having me on again. Big fan of uh, Chapa Trapa, so it's nice to be on. But um, oh, yeah, cool. I think there's, um, there's been a long conflict with, between the United States and the EU and Mexico that precedes uh, the, the Russia-Ukraine war. And that is based largely around the fact that the president of Mexico, ever since his uh, election campaign, has wanted to sort of take back national control of, of the energy sector um, and wants to build Mexico Mexico to have his own oil refinery, for example, because Mexico is in uh, the crazy position in which it has lots of oil, um, which it sort of extracts as crude oil. They send it to the United States to be refined, and then they buy it back from the United States. At obviously, a much higher price for you know to for gas and for people's cars and for cooking, etc. So basically, Mexico's losing money on its own natural resources. So they, the president said. We need to build our own refinery, refine our own resources here, and then we can, you know, to use it ourselves and to sell to the world. And obviously that cuts out the U.S. from the market. The other project he's been pursuing is the nationalization of the country's electricity grid, which is currently owned by uh, mostly Spanish corporations. This is where the EU has become upset in the past year because the law was passed, yeah, was passed last year for the nationalization. Um, and so from there, you've seen a load of like op-eds in, for example, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, talking about the creeping authoritarianism going on in Mexico and democracy is, is dying in Mexico. If you actually click on these articles, the, the evidence of this creeping authoritarianism is usually like, um, President Amlo like insulted this journalist at a press conference and called him like a, a liar or something. And this is, uh, part of the attack. That's, that's the, creeping. That's free- creeping authoritarianism, Ali. It's, it's very, <laughs> exactly. it's very dangerous when we have you know uh, elected leaders um, uh, calling journalists liars. That, that yeah, sounds like Trump yeah. to me. I don't know. I know uh, to, to an example that you're talking about. I remember like uh, it was like a month or two back. I saw a headline. I think it was the Economist or maybe Newsweek that was uh, accusing um, Amlo of economic. Uh, economic warfare, economic nationalism, because uh, Mexico was going to buy 
an oil refinery from Shell who was more than happy to sell it to them. No, it was, it was better than that. They Again, I can't remember which outlet, but they called it is economic imperialism. Economic imperialism, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah that's, you're right. Um, that is even better. Economic imperialism. <laughs> But yeah, like so, like uh, I believe, like uh, like Mexico is like one of the biggest like uh, like exporters of oil to the United States. It's like a hugely important relationship between the United States and Mexico, as it as it relates to oil. But like yeah, like so, like uh, we're seeing now, like how, like Amlo's uh, political ambitions and agenda. Like how is that being received in Mexico? Like how what is his like sort of how is the success of his administration and his party? Um, relate to like these uh, plans to nationalize it, their oil infrastructure and electricity grid. Yeah, that's something that's not ever talked about in all of these, uh, you know, column inches that are given to uh, talking about Mexico and in international media. I'd say Andres Manuel López Obrador is almost certainly the most popular president in the Americas in terms of approval ratings. He um, has approval ratings haven't really dropped below about seventy percent since he was elected. Um, a lot of these journalists basically don't know why. Um, I've, I've, you know, a lot of these sort of foreign correspondents, I, they literally post on Twitter saying, you know, how can, you know, after all, after this and this and this, how can this be? How can uh, he have approval ratings between 60 and 70%? Of course, I think there is, uh, you know, a lot of people I work with in Mexico and, and speak to, they would have their own criticisms of, of what's going on. A lot of people say that change hasn't been rapid enough in terms of what was promised during the campaign. He hasn't yet um, gone through with the nationalization of these natural resources that was promised uh, two years ago. The change of pace has been quite slow. However, the, I think the part of the strength of the attacks against him for these sort of imaginary things has, has been part of what has kept his support quite solid. And the fact that Mexico's, for, for, for the first time in a very long time, despite every party in Mexico having a kind of nationalist discourse, is the first one that appears to be beginning to put into effect. And, I mean, just certain other things like the uh, the minimum wage has risen faster under President Amla than, than any other period. That's got him a lot of popularity. He has huge support amongst elderly people. I've got a friend, a journalist in Mexico who's, uh, she's she's quite critical of of President Amelo, but she said her family are fanatics because the the her grandmother's pension was raised, and they're just blood, they're just fanatics now of President Amelo, and uh, uh, it's these sorts of things that have his popularity are like between sixty and seventy percent, definitely no lower than that, and it's a shame because Mexico's constitution there's a thing they you can't go for re-election, you can only ever serve one term which i don't know I, personally i think it's, it's that's quite an undemocratic measure because it means a lot of presidents they can't be held to account because they they just do what they want for six years and then they disappear um and they, right. they have no one to answer to at the end of it but if any uh, what about what about his change- uh what about his political party though like i mean like like has how is that is, has that been growing and building up or like is there is there someone to success who would succeed him uh, well, yeah, there, there's a definitely a faction fight going on within the, his party. It's called Morena. It was created basically for the you know, pretty recently before the elections, um, before he was sworn in in 2019. He was previously of a different party that has since sort of degenerated into another of the sort of corrupt um, mafia-like parties. It's called the PRD. 
the, the main people in a running to replace him are the, the chairman of the party, called, a woman called Claudia Scheinburn or something like that, and the foreign minister called Marcelo Ebrard. Um, he is probably the next most sort of visible figure in the government. There's, a, there's definitely a left-right split. A lot of people say that the foreign minister, Marcelo Ebrard, is the sort of a more conservative section of the party and he's open to take over and maybe pull the government um, away from some of President Amado's more radical policies. But it's uh, not really, it, certainly for those who aren't insiders, it's, it's not clear exactly what's going to happen. I think a lot of people will like if he ran again, but uh, I'm sure that the New York Times would have a, a lot to say about that. Well, I mean, speaking of those uh, like uh, more radical policies or, you know, uh, imperialism, if you're in the uh, Western press or perhaps for you and your colleagues, maybe something that's uh, being sort of uh, maybe they're dragging their heels a little bit on it. Um, Obrador uh, announced um, an intention, his intention to use executive authority to nationalize Mexico's lithium supply in April and hinted that he would expand. Uh, he would sort of like sort of work in conjunction with like the nationalized poli nationalization policies of other lithium rich nations like Bolivia and Argentina as sort of like an uh, alliance for these like lithium producing countries in the um, Latin American world. Um, what is the status of that? And like, what has been some of the reaction to that? Because, you know, obviously yeah, you know, last time we spoke, lithium played a big role in the coup in Bolivia. Um, so like, you know, this is a hugely important resource and obviously like these countries uh, seeking to nationalize and like, you know, take over control of this very valuable resource um, is obviously going to have huge shockwaves and how it's uh, interpreted and uh, dealt with. Yeah, absolutely. It's massive. It's also part of energy policy as well, obviously, because with that, you get the transition to uh, things like electric vehicles. And Latin America has uh, the, the large majority of the world's lithium supplies. And if they can band together, it, it can form a sort of cartel and set the price rather than have the, you know, the price dependent on fluctuations in international markets. Uh, this, and yeah, Mexico has been very keen, uh, especially talking with other countries that have nationalized its lithium like Bolivia. Uh, AMLO has even been actually, uh, you know, made a comment critical of the fact that Chile, for example, is not nationalizing its lithium. But there is going to be an incredibly important alliance on uh, on the issue of lithium. Uh, there's uh, especially on things like knowledge uh, and investments and stuff. In countries like Bolivia, um, they need to bring in people from the outside, uh, you know, with the technical know-how, etc. Hopefully, countries like Mexico can help in doing that because uh, the argument for a new opposition and the media is like. Well, if, if you don't bring in the foreign companies, we'll never develop this. Um, and so the, especially Mexico and Bolivia, especially those two are the ones who are trying to do this in a state owned manner. Uh, I think the, just a few months ago, the law to nationalize lithium in Mexico was passed. Um, and then the process of creating the state company, Bolivia has had the, their state company for, for quite a few years now, created in Evo Morales' government. And, uh, that, you know, the industrialization, the process of industrialization is already happening. Bolivia already has uh, three or four processing plants in the, in the south of the country, but there, there needs to be a wide international development to make uh, to make this a reality.
Well, I remember the, uh, the last time we talked, um, like as, as regards to uh, Bolivia and their lithium resources, it's like the issue isn't so much, um, or even whether it's petroleum, like the issue isn't so much getting it out of the ground, it's refining it so it's ready to like go to market as a product and like whether the state controls that or whether they have to like outsource it. So even if they're like, um, you know, uh, receiving the benefit of um, just the raw um, natural resource, there's there's way more benefit and power to be had if you can control how it's refined or like control the refining because you're not buying it back from a third party, right? Yeah, that that is the key. That's that's everything because uh, especially for for President Amla, that's the disadvantageous position Mexico is in in terms of oil, for example. That they, as I said earlier, you know they they extract the crude oil, sell it to the United States, and have to buy it back off the United States for 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 a much higher price. So the key is to be able to do that within the country. And that will be worth, you know, uh, trillions for for the country. Um, countries like Chile, uh, they're going for the other route of just, you know, just digging up salt, you know, just filling up bags of salt and selling that on the international market. And of course, they'll they'll that brings in some revenues for the country, but it's is is a tiny fraction of what you know. Selling salt is. Uh, you know, you don't earn as much as if you sell a fully informed battery. And in Bolivia, they're already making the prototypes. I was um, in Congress last week and they were sort of showing these. They've already made like a, a portable phone charger. They've made one of those like big batteries for electric cars. But the problem is, is they, they've, although they've, they're able to make it, they're not yet have the capacity to do it on a massive scale. That's going to need more investments. It's going to need more uh, people coming in with the with the technical knowledge. So th- these things are already happening. It just needs it needs that impulse that an alliance with countries like Mexico could uh, could bring. Uh, yeah, and just like uh, you alluded to, like um, sort of the uh, the the cant of sort of anti-corruption politics as as whenever it's introduced when we're dealing with things like the uh, state control of very valuable natural resources. And you recently interviewed a uh, Mexican journalist, uh, Jose Luis Granados uh, Ceja who uh, discussed the importance of these energy reforms in both establishing AMLO's mandate, but also in reducing the poaching of Mexico's natural resources by uh, foreign capital and financiers. So like, and it's just sort of the, and also the predictability with which opponents of these reforms will turn to anti-corruption politics and anti and anti-corruption sort of um, non-state uh, NGO uh, like institutions to sort of raise doubts and um, uh, counter efforts to uh, stop the like basically looting of these countries' resources. Yeah, I mean the the you, you could write a book about the distortion of like discourses around corruption, especially in Latin America. I mean, so, so some of it is quite really quite ridiculous. I remember reading just the, the other day, there's a story in the Bolivian press about, because Bolivia has a state-owned glass factory that makes glass bottles and is owned by, run by the government. And they are now going to sell glass bottles to Argentina for, for wine, for Argentinian wine. And, you know, it's a, it's a kind of good story, I guess. It's not um, the, the biggest story in the world. But, like, all the comments underneath from, like, right wing was like, oh, I, I bet these mass officials are stealing all the bottles. I bet they're, you know, this they're is getting the, five cents every time they recycle it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All of this discourse around corruption and they oh, if the state owns something, then the officials are going to steal it. Of course, they, it always leaves out the corruption that goes on in the private sector. And who who is doing the corrupting? Who is offering the bribes in capitalist countries? And uh, you get these like ridiculous. I'm sure you would have seen the corruption perception index sort of league tables where 
Mm. You know, they rank countries by corruption. But of course, it's not ranked by corruption. It's ranked by perceptions of corruption. The, how the citizens perceive the corruption within each country. So countries like the UK, people don't believe that there's any corruption because obviously there's, there's no kind of propaganda campaign around it to their own citizens. Whereas, of course, we know that the UK and its uh, financial centre is probably the most corrupt place anywhere on earth where, you know, people don't get bribes for $1,000 or $10,000, but where, you know, we're talking about millions and billions of pounds of, uh, of, of dirty money being laundered and all sorts of other things. But um, these, these ridiculous tables to calculate what corruption is is based on perception rather than actual cases. So is a... That that's an international campaign as well. You know these these tables are uh, published in in foreign media, etc. But I think this uh, is it's not something that I think should uh, should concern governments going forward. Okay, um, if we could, uh, I guess just uh, uh, oh yeah, and one last thing about um, Amlo is that he has. Um, I, I know, like uh, he was the one who offered asylum to uh, Morales after the coup, and he's currently offering asylum to Julian Assange and uh, citizenship as well. I mean, like, uh, are you, have you been following that at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, it, it's quite impressive how how outspoken Amla has been um, about these sorts of issues, uh, considering how important the sort of U.S.-Mexico relationship is. I think in relation to Assange, he said, like, if they jail Assange, then they should knock down the Statue of Liberty because it's, it's meaningless yeah. if they um, look up Assange. And, yeah, he, was, he saved Eva Morales' life. Uh, bringing a, mic, a military plane to the jungle in Bolivia to pick up Evo Morales. And that plane was then shot at by rogue members of the Bolivian military. That's something that he re- revealed like a year later in a book, shot at with RPGs as they were trying to take off. Jesus. And the fact that they were willing to take that risk, you know, with their military personnel, obviously taking your military personnel to another country, to a hostile country to do something is already enormously risky. and all sorts of things could go wrong, uh, especially if your troops are then uh, made to engage in like fire. You're then firing on foreign soil. That's inc- all of this is fraught with difficulties, but he was able to do it. And, uh, you know, at, at that time, who else was going to do it? Who else was going to do it? Argentina had a right-wing government. All of Bolivia's neighbors had right-wing governments. He had no, Morales had nowhere to go, and Mexico came in with a plane and saved him at, at great risk to themselves. So. That was uh, an incredibly important thing. I've noticed, like in the, since 2019, there's been like a massive, like I would say, rise in popularity of like Mexican culture, of everything, of like sort of mariachi pop music, of like Mexican food. You see it everywhere in Bolivia, particularly since 2019. I think precisely because people see Mexico as a really friendly country and there's a, a leader within the region for for sovereignty. Uh, yeah, moving on from Mexico, which is probably like, you know, in, in Latin America, like the, one of the biggest countries, certainly one of the most wealthy and certainly one that has the closest relationship with the United States. But not too much far behind Mexico is Colombia, which has the third largest population in South America and has for like now 60 or 70 years basically been like the lodestar for American foreign policy in South America. Um, they have just elected uh, Gustavo Petro. Uh, to be president, like I guess, like the first like left wing presidential uh, like leader that they've had in that country, like since the Civil War. How, how like okay, how, first of all, like how would you describe Gustavo Petro, like his story, his political platform? But like, how is the election of his party 
in Colombia, like such a close ally of the United States and one that's been ruled by the right wing for like 60 years. Um, how is that being interpreted in the rest of Latin America, like particularly in like left wing movements? Is there is there, are they optimistic yeah. or are they like are they sort of very cautious about where this might be going within the Latin American left? There's huge, huge optimism about uh, the election of Gustavo Petro. Again, not everyone is, <laughs> uh, knows everything about the, the movement and about him as a candidate, etc. But there is huge optimism because Colombia has been for the Latin American left outside of Colombia. Colombia has been the the outpost where the United States has destabilized the rest of the continent. It's from their bases in Colombia where they attack Venezuela. Um, it's Colombia, which is the number one narco state in uh, South America. You know, even the U.S.'s own figures from the State Department recognize that 96% of the cocaine that comes into the United States originates from Colombia. This is where the DA has the biggest presence of anywhere in South America. Um, Aren't they also one of the biggest exporters of foreign mercenaries as well? Like, you know, yeah, US I mean, Spain, like exactly. squads they're, they're, and mercenaries they're... are used. I mean, like the Saudis use them and then like other, you know, both like uh, narco traffickers and, you know, right wing governments. But like a lot of these guys are trained by the United States military because they've been, you know, fighting, uh, fighting the civil war for like the last 50 years against against yeah. these guerrillas. Yeah, definitely. They've, you know, they first cut their teeth uh, in the war against the Colombian people in which they were trained by the United States. Then they go on and do things like assassinate the president of Haiti. Um, yeah. And they. They go like they're, they're even as they're, they even have a presence in the Middle East and they're, they're definitely, you know, this new industry is forming, which is part of what makes going to make it so difficult for Gustavo Petro because in now he has an opposition that is not only very organized, it's not only very large, but they're armed to the teeth. They have people who are highly trained killers, um, paramilitary groups stretching back, you know, 50, 60 years you now got these sort of mercenary groups, ex-soldiers trained in the most brutal and just savage forms of warfare. What are they going to do now? Are they going to accept a lot of what uh, they're going to try to do? Are they going to accept, for example, an expulsion of, of the US military presence? We haven't heard Gustavo Petra talk about any of that. I think that's, that's unfortunate. Or about like Colombia's sort of associate membership with NATO. I think it's interesting that NATO chose... NATO's partner in Latin America is the region's number one narco state, number one paramilitary state, number one state in which criminal organization is completely incorporated into politics. So it's going to be an incredibly like delicate path for Gustavo Petra to tread. Uh, so it, <laughs> we have I mean, to keep I mean an one eye of the things that, that, yeah, I know, I mean, like talk about how delicate and how dangerous the situation he finds himself in, because like a big part of his um, his platform is reducing Colombia's dependence on the export of petroleum and cocaine. And if you're fucking with uh, the oil and drug industry, just fucking drug traffickers, you're dealing with some of like the people who like, oh, if, if they take a haircut or a loss, these are like the most dangerous people on the planet. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, that's what uh, I wanted to, to talk about. About uh, Gustavo Petro has a background as a sort of environmentalist. He talks about ending the extraction economy, ending dependence on oil. Uh, he's even attacked Venezuela, talking about like they are they, they represent the politics of death because oil is the politics of death. The reality is, and and I should say that this you know 
Petro and people like Gabriel Boric in Chile, they, this sort of new wave of leftist presidents, they definitely define themselves against some of the old pink tide of people like Chavez, Evo Morales, etc. And the reality is that I don't think this, this kind of discourse is going to work. I don't think it's going to happen, uh, f- you know, at a basic level, because one, Gustavo Petro and Gabriel Boric have been elected at a time of a global energy crisis and shortage. Two, the consequences of gas prices going up, even by one cent in Latin America, are incredibly serious. You know, if, if you think that it's bad news for Joe Biden politically that gas prices are going up, in Latin America, you know, the, the capital city. No, that's why you have like people down. in the streets. You have thousands of people in your capital city, like turning over yeah, cars. Yeah, the capital city yeah. burns down. It's not even a left or right thing. It's not about this, oh, the left here is more organized than that left. No, if gas prices go up, it's just a general uprising of the population, uh, incredibly violent uprising of the population. No one really survives that. Everyone who's attempted to withdraw subsidies, for example, for gas prices has either ended up being overthrown or had to just walk it back after like a few days because it's the most sensitive issue in the country. You know, people, these are people farm, you know, in rural communities who, you know, earn, earning nothing and having to pay like an extra dollar a day for gas that destroys people. So no one will accept that. Um, this is, this discourse from people like Gabriel Boric and Gustavo Petro, if you look at who they are, where they come from, they're very different to people like Chavez and Evo Morales. Chavez and Evo Morales came, came from, you know, working class areas and rural areas. They knew what it was like to struggle. Whereas people like Gabriel Boric, Gustavo Petro, they come from much more um, middle-class backgrounds, academic backgrounds. And this is this sort of politics is quite, um, only exists in Latin America amongst these sorts of academic, university, student circles, middle-class people who live in big cities and don't know what it's like to be in rural areas and have to depend on gas for everything you do, depend on gas to, you know, cut down bananas, things like this. And uh, we see it play out in pretty much every country here in, Bolivia, for example, uh, just last year, a new sort of uh, gas fields were discovered, new gas reserves. Everyone was jumping for joy. No one was thinking about the environment. The only people who are now trying to organize protests against uh, the exploration there are sort of right-wing middle-class groups in big cities, um, you know, talking about the environment, whereas the whole of the left, working-class, you know, unions, indigenous organizations – People are just desperate to find these new sources of income, but precisely because they're going to be owned by the state. And that's the other side of Gustavo Petro and Gabriel Boric's discourse against extraction is I think it's going to be come down to be an excuse to not nationalize natural resources because the discourse will be, well, we don't want our economy to be based on this, so we're not going to nationalize it. And so we're, we're not going to see the kind of transformations that we saw in the old pink tide. Uh, and it's a shame. I think the the new... The new uh, sort of quote unquote pink tight leaders, they should be adding to, to the legacy of the first wave rather than taking away. So, you know, Boric, Petro, they're very good on things such as LGBT issues or feminism, et cetera, better than some of the older leaders. But they should be an evolution, I think, would mean adding that rather than taking away some of the politics around nationalization, I mean, around sovereignty, yeah. national sovereignty. 
uh, around standing up to the United States. So I think we, it's a shame that they define themselves against some of that legacy. And yeah, like, I mean, this is something I remember from the, our, our last conversation, at least as, with as regards to Bolivia, is that like, you know, for, for building like left-wing movements or successful like, you know, mass political parties and exercising like true political power, it does, it, like, you can't really do that with like a sort of like standard Western liberal environmentalist agenda. Like you can't stand up to the powers of, you know, like Western neoliberal capitalism by not uh, developing and nationalizing the the resources that your country has to offer, and like like you can't like you know you can't really it's it's a shame but like you can't you can't stop you know like West like imperialism from dominating your countries by saving the rainforest. It's just a question of like who is exploiting those resources and for what and for to whose benefit is it to the benefit of like you know multinational Western corporations that are just sort of pillaging and poisoning the country or is it going to be done by the people like the state itself for the benefit of the people in these countries. Yeah, you see a lot of, uh, today in sort of Western sort of leftist academic circles about degrowth, right? Everyone's talking about degrowth. Of course, I'd say degrowth for who? Because, you know, I'm talking to you from Bolivia and where I see a lot more growth is needed, a lot more uh, roads, a lot more hospitals, a lot more schools, uh, electricity, you know, it needs to extend the electricity infrastructure for people, extend access to energy, et cetera. Uh, you know, there needs to be growth rather than degrowth. And that that word would be quite alien uh, to most people in the global south because everyone's thinking about how we can actually grow rather than degrowth. And uh, it's easy for, you know, as I said, people from the backgrounds like Gabriel Boric or from these sort of uh, certain, certain sort of Western leftist academic circles who live in big cities in apartments where they've got, you know, 10 devices plugged in, they've got running water whenever they want it, they can flush the toilet whenever they want it, to say, oh, well, we need to um, engineer a kind of zero growth because obviously they, their standard of living is already at an acceptable level. So, where yeah, it would say, be perfect to just freeze everything at this current moment right now for me in my apartment in Brooklyn. But like exactly. <laughs> everything that like this depends on here in, here in New York City is like if we freeze it at that level for the people that like, you know, allow electricity at the bottom, like the very, if you trace to the most bottom level for electricity to come into my laptop right now, that's not, that's not, that's not a, a leftist or a particularly humanitarian uh, view of the world to just sort of freeze development at their level. Exactly. You know, I mean, I've, I've driven through areas here where like people, you know, it's a lot of people in millions of people across this continent don't have regular access to electricity uh, they can't flush the toilet whenever they want to. Those there needs to be a huge amount of investment into energy infrastructure to extend access for those people. I remember years ago, um, Evan Morales was attacked because they were building a road connecting Cochabamba to Beni, which is an Amazonian region. And um, you know there was a massive international campaign about, oh, they're destroying the rainforest, they're destroying the rainforest. All, all the communities along that path were desperately for it, were mobilizing and marching in favor of the road because they lived in communities where they basically had no schools, hospitals, because it was so difficult to get there. Um, there was no way to bring equipment or medicines or, you know, even equipment to build people's houses. There's no way of physically getting in there because the forest was so dense. And this road would allow people to have access to basic necessities, access to, to internet, access to, you know, just basic medical services. And in the end, you know, it had to be scrapped because of this sort of uh, environmental outcry, which in the cities of Bolivia, 
was led by the people, you know, with uh, four-story houses and, you know, uh, high-speed internet and electricity whenever they need it. And, of course, the people don't realize that people do want development. And I think this is the transition to climate, you know, to zero carbon or whatever. It has to be. It has to be about green energy solutions, about, you know, be renewable, whatever, rather than making the poorest people in the world poorer. You never, that's, and people never go, it's just never going to happen. People aren't going to accept it. People are going to rise up wherever that, uh, those policies are, uh, are introduced. So there has to be discussions about, for example, what Evan Morales said years ago, the climate debt that Western countries owe the global South, that the Western countries, they were able to industrialize and raise the standards of living of their population by polluting the atmosphere to a massive degree. Now the global South has the right to do that. But why can't that be done with green energy solutions? And the West should be providing the, the investments and the know-how for that development to be taking place in a, uh, in a sustainable way. Because the, the, people do have a right to develop. People do have a right to have roads, uh, to have electricity in their homes, to have running water in their homes. And to say that you know, we, just, we just cut things off here is uh is not is not acceptable to the majority of people in the world um to return to uh colombia for a moment i mean in there in the in the lead up to the i mean just like like last year there were a lot of like a big protests against the colombian government which were extraordinarily violent and led to something like 46 deaths of protesters that we know about but that is a drop in the bucket compared to i don't know if you saw the new york times article that came out that um you know, lo and behold, um, reveals reveals now to the public the scale of like the terrorist atrocities U.S. backed that were carried out in the 21st century against the Colombian people. Like, and then and then of course, in the New York Times is telling of it. It was like we were sending all these millions of dollars to Colombia in spite of the fact that they're killing thousands of, you know, basically of just you know farmers and like you know uh, like un- union uh, organizers or whatever. I mean, just like the, the 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 true scale of the violence and like the, you said, like the way in which Colombia has been the um like the, the headquarters for the destabilization of the rest of the region but like that is only possible by an extraordinary scale of terrorism and violence directed at the colombian people themselves yeah it's uh it's been a war against the colombian people going back 50 years uh peace accords were signed in 2016 uh so, you know marking a formal end to the civil war but what we've seen is that the you know the farc the the guerrilla groups handed in their weapons, gave up their territory, entered legal politics, but the state never ended its war. I mean, to now around two to three union leaders are killed per week uh, in the rural areas of Colombia. Um, a lot of people as well who signed the peace accords, FARC members who signed the peace accords, the war never ended. And it's uh, in the countryside, there's a state of state complicity in the lawlessness that goes on in the uh, coordination with the paramilitary groups. And that is big part of what has turned Colombia as well into a narco state because, and along with the poverty, for example, in the Colombian countryside, the, a coca producer, someone who grows the coca leaf, which in itself is not a drug, but in Colombia, people are growing five, six hectares of pure coca that is going straight to the drug trade. And the price of this coca is so low. For example, in Bolivia, where we have a legal uh, coca grow, uh, there's a set amount that people are allowed to grow. People, each farmer has about a quarter of a hectare of coca. 
and they can live off that. It, you know, it, it provides a sort of basic income because selling the leaf, uh, there's not enough. Dem- you know, the supply and demand is matched up to a point where people can actually earn a living. But in Colombia, because there's no development, there's no people can't grow anything else. So they go five, six hectares of coke, which is like ten times more than what people grow in Bolivia, and the means the price is so low, people don't live off the leaf. So now you have families creating cocaine paste within, you know, within their own homes. And then that's how they earn a living. And that only exists because of the severe underdevelopment. Because if people are growing pineapples or oranges, they have no way to take out. There's no roads. Uh, there's no infrastructure for them to be able to grow alternative crops. So then you get this... Uh, just, uh, and like you don't need an, you don't need an industrial process to refine pineapple into like pineapple paste that can be you know used <laughs> effectively. <laughs> yeah, but I mean that's the point is that and then all of these areas get taken over by paramilitary groups, uh, by other sort of armed groups, and then there's a constant war between the state uh, and and the groups that are there. So there's is a cycle of poverty which contributes to, into Colombia becoming a narco state. And this, these are the kind of massive structural issues that Gustavo Petro is going to have to deal with. It, there's no easy solution. The main one will be development for rural areas and to you know, get the presence of the DEA out because it's with the presence of the DEA that Colombia has become the cocaine powerhouse of the, of the region. Yeah, I, I think it should be pretty clear by now, at least by the 21st century, 2022, that the purpose of the DEA is to facilitate the flow of drugs into America, not the opposite. Exactly. <laughs> and it, look, who else was their close ally? Honduras. The cocaine route was Colombia, Honduras, Miami. And both countries were close allies of the United States. And now the ex-president, the right-wing president of Honduras, uh, Juan Orlando, Orlando Hernandez, has now been extradited to the United States and they're going to try him in the United States for narco-trafficking after having worked with him. I'd say that they, they wanted him extradited so that they could try him and not have everything come out. If he'd been yeah, tried yeah. in Honduras, who knows what would have come out about their coordination with the United States. Yeah, they might have looked into like you know uh, w- w- the direct deposits in his checking account and who they were from. <laughs> So I guess okay, like like uh, just taking like like a like a, a broader view is like you know like there's obviously like all these countries are, are very different. They face different um, you know like challenges and circumstances that led to you know what, what you're describing as sort of like pink tide 2.0. It's like a number of these countries, like Colombia included, like which specifically you know recently would have been unthinkable, have elected you know, uh, like left oriented or like semi-socialist governments to like to, to varying degrees. But like, you know, the, the, the left in, in Latin America has been like, you know, the target of a more or less, like, regardless of like how different the countries may be, they've all been the target of a war directed at them by the United States. So like the extent to which they will be successful in forming a kind of new block to counter U.S. hegemony or neoliberalism, like what, what do you see as the signs or like any possibility of a kind of a broader uh, like a, a block of countries that are united and forming a kind of united front, whether it's on like trade, energy, foreign policy, like a, a, against their like, you know, what, what was now decades of domination by the United States. I think there's a historic opportunity. The U.S. certainly in the past, you know, a couple of decades, I think has never been weaker, not only in the region, but at a global level. And now I think the biggest story in Latin America right now is the economic recovery in Venezuela. And now with the Russia and Ukraine war, the United States is having to come back to Venezuela uh, and try 
Uh, we'll see what happens. But to try and basically start buying that oil after having they themselves boycotted it and destroyed their oil industry for years with the sanctions, starting with Obama and intensifying under Trump. And, you know, the tables are really turning in that aspect. And as I said, I think the biggest story right now coming from Latin America is the economic recovery of Venezuela. And it's key to the energy market. For the past three years, you know, very quietly, Venezuela has been rebuilding its oil industry. Their oil industry was almost destroyed by U.S. sanctions because a lot of their uh, refineries, etc., was built around using sort of U.S. technology. And with the sanctions, they weren't able to bring in repairs, etc. So the, the production of oil almost collapsed. And it was something imposed by the United States. You know, the United States has told the world, first, you have to boycott Iranian oil. Then you have to boycott Venezuelan oil. And now you have to boycott Russian oil. And people, you know, countries like you know, India and others, they, they got tired of this. You know, they used to buy from all these countries and now they don't have energy. And they, so that's why they're increasing their purchase from Russia. But Venezuela, for the past few years, has been rebuilding with investment from Iran. Iran has been the number one country that has rebuilt the Venezuelan oil industry. China and Russia have played a smaller role. China is a consumer, is one of the only countries that was still buying Venezuelan oil when uh, Europe and the United States were, were boycotting it. Uh, Russia with some sort of smaller investments, but Ru Iran, the government of Iran has been the one that has rebuilt the, the oil industry of Venezuela using Iranian technology, sort of adapting the infrastructure, the refineries with Iranian technology, so they're no longer dependent on the US. And now their production of oil is, uh, you know, even at the end of last year was hitting a million barrels a day, which is, the, you know, close to the pre-sanctions level. So the supplies is coming back. And this can fill the hole with, which has been left by U.S. sanctions on Russia. But of course, the, the United, this is going to have to be quite a humiliating climb down from the United States after having done everything to destroy, actively destroy the energy market at an international level and destroy, uh, try to overthrow the Venezuelan government. But the Venezuelan government has, has withstood those bad years. You know, 2018, 2019, economic situation was so dire in Venezuela, inflation running into the thousands of percent uh, annually. But now what you see with the production of oil going back up, inflation is back into the single figures, monthly inflation back into single figures for the first time since sanctions began. They no longer the, have the highest inflation in the region. Argentina now has a higher rate of inflation. Um, you know, the invest foreign investment is coming back to Venezuela. Uh, this is... It, it, it's quite an unprecedented economic recovery. Even Credit, Credit Suisse released a report a few months ago, uh, well, in, in January, predicting that there would be 15% growth in, in Venezuela's GDP in 2022. That's obviously, there's nowhere else in the world that's having that level of growth. So this you, is... You've also, you've also covered like uh, Bolivia as well. Their economy continues to grow. And also inflation is being kept down in uh, Bolivia as well. Uh, like how, how is, yeah, um, Bolivia has the lowest inflation that? in the world. <laughs> in 2021, <laughs> the accumulated inflation was 0.51%. Um, and I think that, that Bolivia's, there's a lot of interesting, innovative solutions coming out of Bolivia right now, which I think doesn't get enough attention and which a lot of other countries could do. So... When the Russia-Ukraine war started, obviously there's been this global shortage of grain, uh, you know, which needs to make bread, etc. But Bolivia, start, uh, you know, a policy going back many years, starting with Evo Morales in about 
in like 2008, 2009, was to stockpile grain, stockpile in these massive state-owned warehouses. And whenever the price, international price goes up, the government then releases some of these reserves, price goes back down. Um, just a couple of months ago, I remember the, the cattle ranchers wanted to raise the price of beef. The Bolivian government had its own stocks of beef and they said, right, we're going to start selling it in the state-owned supermarkets at the original price. So what happens then? It's the free market. Price corrects itself. The private sector has to bring down the prices again because the, uh, their competitors, the state, is selling at X price. These are the sorts of innovative, innovative ideas that I think could, uh, a lot of countries could be employing right now. The question of fertilizer, global fertilizer shortage. Russia and Ukraine are the number one producers of fertilizer internationally. Countries like Peru, like Brazil, and now have a total crisis in, uh, you know, in agriculture. They don't have enough fertilizer. But Bolivia doesn't. Bolivia has its state-owned fertilizer plant built in 2019 and Devo Morales. And if you can imagine this, it was actually closed by the right-wing coup government. They said it was, well, it's part of their free market reforms, you know, closing the state industries. If they would be in power now, Bolivian agriculture would be in crisis. But it's not. Now Bolivia is earning huge amounts from the price, you know, going up like 10x uh, since the Russia-Ukraine war started. And not only, and of course, the local producers have their supply guaranteed. And any country, any country of natural gas can make fertilizer. Fertilizer is a, uh, you know, urea, ammonium is petrochemicals. Any country could, with gas, oil can do it. Brazil under Lula used to have its own state fertilizer plants. And it was, of course, closed after the coup in 2016. And now Brazil is having to import it from Bolivia, and, uh, and other countries. So uh, these are uh, the, the free market has, has crumbled upon impact with first the pandemic and now the Russia-Ukraine war, whereas countries with a strong state sector have been able to weather the storm a lot, a lot better, and Bolivia is the chief among them. And I guess, like, you know, there's an immense opportunity right now, I guess is what you're saying, for a kind of um, an, an alliance or some sort of, like, uh, like sort of independent block in Latin America of... Uh, like, 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 what would that kind of solidarity look like as a counter to like U.S. hegemony in the region? I think the the most important question is energy sovereignty and the question of lithium. I, I think we're not quite there yet, though, because countries like Argentina, countries like Chile, don't have the same uh, strength of their state sector, so it makes it more difficult to coordinate. That's what the we need to bring back of the uh, of the so-called old pink tide, where we had strong state industries that were coordinating with each other. Well, that's what is missing at the moment with uh, people like Petro, Boric, or, or Alberto Fernandez in Argentina, where they don't have the same uh, you know, focus on nationalization and state industries, because without that, there can't be that level of coordination. You can't, can't set the lithium price at an international level if the private sector is running it in two of the countries, because then the private sector, they're owned by, you know, God knows who. And so there, there is that weakness. But I think there is, a, as I said, there's an opportunity for Latin American integration. That's the most important thing. Integration without the United States. So organisms like uh, CELAC, for example, which is groups together all of the Latin American countries in the Caribbean in, you know, in a block without the presence of the United States. That's what UNASUR was. It was destroyed uh, when uh, sort of the last wave of right-wing governments came in but that is the most important is to have organisms for integration that don't include the united states and canada because obviously their interests 
uh, are very, very different to the interests of, uh, of Central, South America, and the Caribbean. I guess just uh, just to wrap things up here, just from our, our perspective here in the States, like where, you know, obviously everyone is losing their mind because of gas prices and inflation. And, you know, from our conversation, like, you know, uh, a solution to that, if you are, you know, Joe Biden, haha, or any like, uh, you know, nascent left wing movement in, you know, in, uh, in, in, in very wealthy developed capitalist countries, uh, like sort of runs through this idea of state control and state development of natural resources and like a, a large state sector for the economy to uh, weather like, you know, the, the crises of capitalism that are happening right now. Absolutely. It- and it's all about efficient management as well. Yeah, of course, it's all about efficient management. I mean, Bolivia is the number one example of how this uh, has been able to work. There's a whole chain that goes into this. You know, even uh, earlier today, I bought my honey at the state-owned supermarket. You know, Bolivia has, has built a chain of supermarkets where they sell things, you know, all over the country, not only in the cities, but also rural areas, uh, things like rice, flour. And they, through that, they can keep, the, the price, uh, the prices low and hedge against inflation. All of these are innovative ideas. I think subsidies are incredibly important. Of course, it's very costly. But I think I, sometimes when I read tweets by Joe Biden talking about like the gas, the gas companies need to, they need to stop with these rises. Blah blah. blah. Like it's insanity. How about, how about you, you just become them. a gas company? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can you can set the gas prices. A government can set the gas prices and they can uh, put in the investment that's necessary. That's what Bolivia is doing. That's what countries like Nicaragua is doing. The gas prices haven't risen one cent since the Russia-Ukraine war, precisely because of this. So th- there's no other way other than, and as I said, the free market system has crumbled first with the pandemic and then with the Russia-Ukraine war. This, will, this is why we're seeing the election of these left-wing governments, because if you Remember what was going on in 2018, 2019, when Juan Guaido declared himself president of Venezuela. It felt like the right was just this all-powerful force in Latin America. They held pretty much every government in South America, except for Bolivia, until the coup, obviously. Um, There was this massive hegemonic bloc that was coordinating with the United States to isolate Venezuela. Uh, People like Mauricio Macri in Argentina... Um, that the guy of Bolsonaro in Brazil, in Chile, in Peru, everywhere. And now all of those governments that seemed so powerful at the time all crumbled when the pandemic started because the free, the, uh, their system of extreme inequality, zero social safety net, of capital being owned by uh, either foreign companies or just like five families, all of that crumbled upon impact with a pandemic when people had to be locked in their homes and suddenly it was like, well, how am I going to feed myself? Most like 80% people work in the informal economy. How are they going to feed themselves? No state support. All of that system came crashing down with a pandemic. And now it's got even more intense with the Russia-Ukraine war. But these governments like Petro in Colombia or Boric in Chile or Castillo in Peru, they're going to find the same problems with that the right-wing governments had in a pandemic, they're going to have the same problems with the Russia-Ukraine war if they uh, if they don't embrace the old legacy of the state sector, of nationalization, of the government playing a coordinating role in the economy, which they haven't wanted to do, but they're going to have face the same problems if they don't do it now with the Russia-Ukraine war. 
Ali Vargas, I think we should uh, leave it there. I want to thank you so much for uh, spending this time with us today. If people would like to um, uh, find more of your, I, what I think is really um, indispensable reporting on uh, Latin America and Bolivia in particular, uh, where should they go? No, thanks. Thanks, Will, for having me on. Um, yeah, uh, obviously, I'm the co-director of Calcetra News, which is uh, uh, the media outlet we run from here on Bolivia, uh, covering Latin America. We've just launched our own podcast, actually, just a couple of weeks ago. We're on, we just today released our third episode. With, uh, we interviewed uh, Laureano Ortega, which is the, is the son of the president of Nicaragua. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to be interviewing Andres Arauz, who was nearly the president of Ecuador. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, we, we just launched that. Um, it's called Latin America Review. You can find all the news and analysis there. So yeah, Ali, that, me on again. That, uh, congratulations on the new podcast. It sounds awesome. But I'm going to let you know right now, if you start um, flirting with price controls on podcast episodes, I'm doing a coup to you. Chapa, <laughs> we, are, we are intervening in, in, in the Ali Vargas uh, sector of the, uh, Latin America to uh, stop you from uh, yeah, bringing down the price of podcasts. I'm going to release our excess reserve. <laughs> That's a no-no. That's a no-no. I'm, I'm getting on the line. I'm getting on the line with the CIA right now. All right, Ali Vargas, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you, Will. Thanks. Cheers. Avenge the brakes.